Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Bitcoin and the American Experiment. Please welcome the president of the Heritage Foundation, Dr. Kevin Roberts. Well, thank you all for being here, uh, nearly full theater, for an issue that I think will not only be very important for the rest of our lives, we at the Heritage Foundation believe it is perhaps the single greatest disruptive innovation in a positive sense in our lifetimes. And you will see, not just as a result of tonight, but work that we will be doing moving forward, that Heritage's involvement with Bitcoin, our endorsement of Bitcoin as saving freedom and flourishing around the planet is something that we're committed to starting tonight. So thank you for being here for that. Bitcoin, as we all know, is a free market technological revolution with the potential to replace centrally planned currencies like the dollar and act as a backbone to a decentralized economy where bureaucrats don't call all the shots. Now, of course, we happen to know there's a little bit of a problem with centralization and bureaucrats calling too many shots. We also know that the Federal Reserve for a century has proven totally incapable of stabilizing prices since leaving the gold standard and turning to unbacked floating money. Bitcoin could help protect Americans since it cannot be created out of nothing. Americans have historically had a deep distrust for central banks as corrupt and destabilizing. This early American historian would say that they have every reason to be distrustful. It used to be one of the most important fights in political campaigns. As America's fourth central bank, the Federal Reserve has proven those suspicions prescient. The Federal Reserve has also been complicit in raising taxes on the American people through the hidden tax of inflation, the most unfair tax of all because it's the most unequal of all. And it has enabled runaway spending by the federal government, especially during the last two years of overwrought COVID lockdowns. With the Federal Reserve either unable or unwilling to protect the value of Americans' earnings and savings, Bitcoin represents a potential lifeboat to escape central planning and embrace our country's free market patrimony. There are few more persuasive advocates for Bitcoin than the two members of the United States Senate who will be with us here tonight, Senator Ted Cruz and Senator Cynthia Lummis. I'm privileged, as all of us at Heritage are, to count the two of them, Senators Cruz and Lummis, as great friends. I have the privilege of now introducing my good friend from my Texas years, Senator Cruz, who, among other things, of course, is persuasive and articulate on this issue. I could keep you here for several minutes waxing poetic, as I'm sure Senator Cruz would appreciate all of the reasons that we like him and adore him here at Heritage, but I want to preserve as much time as we can for his comments as well as for the conversation that he and I will have with you when we have some time following his talk. So would you please join me in giving a very warm welcome to our friend, Senator Ted Cruz of Texas.
Well, good evening. Kevin, thank you very much. It is great to be back at Heritage. It's great to be with so many friends. And it's great to be talking about a topic that matters. Bitcoin and the American Experiment. I like that title. What is the American Experiment? What are the principles that make the American Experiment unique? Innovation? Prosperity? Risk? Property rights? Freedom? United States of America and the free enterprise system we have here has produced more prosperity, more abundance, more opportunity than any economic system in the history of mankind. If you look at Bitcoin, the Bitcoin revolution and the crypto revolution that goes alongside it, it is truly a remarkable innovation derived from a white paper published online that suggested that money doesn't have to be a government monopoly anymore. Money doesn't have to be the exclusive province of politicians to play with at their whim and to fund their latest endeavor to get reelected. But rather, money and value could be found through blockchain, through a distributed ledger that everyone had access to, that nobody was in charge of. This concept was brilliant and revolutionary. I got to say, when it comes to Bitcoin and when it comes to crypto more generally, I am incredibly bullish. I think it is in the process of, and in the future even more so, will change the world. Now, what's the attraction? of Bitcoin. What are the advantages? There are a whole bunch. Number one, that I think is drawing a lot of people to it right now, is as a hedge against inflation. As long as there have been centralized banks, as long as there's been government currency, the tendency, the temptation to inflate your currency has proven almost irresistible. In the United States, certainly to Democrats, but almost as much to Republicans. I'm reminded of a friend of mine who suggested a slogan for the Republican Party. Republicans, we waste less. <laughs> or today's versions, Republicans, we spend slightly less than the trillions the other guys are trying to spend. Now, look, as a cause and effect, when the government printing presses go burr, <laughs> inflation comes home to all of us. We see the values of our savings diminished as there are more and more and more dollars. Each one of the dollars we have is worth less and less and less. And just as in any time of inflation, hard assets, assets like gold and silver, become more attractive as a hedge against inflation, I think we're also seeing millions of people worldwide turning to Bitcoin as a hedge against inflation. One of the most important innovations of Bitcoin is that it's set at 21 million and exactly 21 million maximum Bitcoin, not 21 million and one. 
that line promises a finite supply. And at the end of the day, what is money? It's a deep and profound question, and there are bigger brains in this room than mine who can give insightful answers, but money is ultimately a medium of exchange. You think of the origins of money back in the hunter-gatherer days when we had to rely on barter, when we had to rely on you've got a sheep and I've got a chicken. And I'd kind of like a sheep and you'd kind of like a chicken. And so we could engage in a currency that if I carried three chickens under my arm and gave them to you, maybe you'd give me a sheep. Now, that worked in a limited setting, but it was kind of inconvenient to carry three chickens under your arm. And then you had to know, well, how many chickens is it if I want a bunch of bananas? And even worse, what if it's only part of a chicken? Barter had serious and obvious limitations, and so what is money? Money was an agreed-upon uniform exchange rate that if we could agree that a sheep was $3 and a chicken was $1, then we could simply exchange that unit of currency and know the relative prices of one good to another. That works when the unit of currency is relatively stable. It becomes far less valuable when government decision-makers are able to devalue that currency. So that's one of the many appeals of Bitcoin, is the stability of amounts. There's also an appeal of speed, the ability to instantly carry out a financial transaction anywhere in the world instantaneously and virtually costless. You think about the delays and costs it could entail if you want to wire some money from one person to the other that it could take hours or days imposing significant costs whereas where Bitcoin can be transferred instantaneously. That poses an advantage but it especially poses an advantage for the unbanked. Bitcoin is global. What does that mean? That means if you're a subsistence farmer in Honduras or in Africa, you may not have access to banking. You may not have a secure store of wealth. I guess if you have some money, you can dig a hole in your backyard and hope no one comes to find it. But part of the beauty of Bitcoin and crypto is it gives access to global finances, to buying and selling, to transferring value instantaneously no matter where you are. That's remarkable. And then there is the advantage of freedom. There's nobody in charge. That terrifies government decision makers. Pause for a second and reflect why Communist China has banned Bitcoin. The answer is real serious, real simple. They can't control it. They don't like 
something they can't control. By the way, that is the exact same reason most Democrats don't like Bitcoin. Why does Bitcoin make Elizabeth Warren toss and turn and twitch at night? <laughs> because she wants her sticky little socialist fingers to be able to control every penny in every one of our bank accounts. By the way, that's the same thing she wants in China. Uncontrolled, decentralized currency is terrifying for those who want control of currency. You know, there was a revealing moment up in Canada when you had the Canadian truckers. By the way, what a fantastic... You know, when in, in recent times have people talked about badass, disruptive Canadians? <laughs> I say this as someone born in Canada. Canadians are unfailingly nice and polite. I don't know what happened with me. They, they screwed up with me. Sorry. <laughs> but you look at those Canadian truckers who the eyes of the world were focused on those truckers standing up and saying, what the hell are you doing trying to force me to make medical decisions about my life? It's none of your damn business. And we also saw the petty tyrants. We saw Trudeau coming down with the force of government on those individual citizens daring to speak out in one of the great exchanges. So there was initially crowdfunding until Silicon Valley agreed to order, obey the orders of government and cut off the funding. And basically announced it was going to steal the truckers' money. And so in response, people began contributing Bitcoin. And there was a wonderful exchange where the Canadian government demanded of one custodial outlet, hand over your client's information and hand over your client's Bitcoin. And they wrote a spectacular letter in response, which basically said the joy of a distributive ledger, we don't have control of it, we can't hand it over, we couldn't if we wanted to, and go piss off. <laughs> That's a beautiful thing. Let me talk about something else, which is energy. So one of the criticisms of Bitcoin is it consumes too much energy. It takes enormous energy to mine Bitcoin. And the socialists of the world say, wouldn't it be better if that energy were spent on something else? Why should it be spent on enabling people to have financial independence and freedom. That's a terrible thing. Well, I actually think Bitcoin has an incredible potential to benefit us on the energy front. Let's take, for example, natural gas flaring. If you come out to the Permian Basin, West Texas, by the way, I encourage you, come out to the Permian Basin, West Texas. <laughs> Incredibly productive. You come in as far as the eye can see pump jacks producing from one of the most incredibly productive reservoirs in the world. Now, on many of those instances, particularly if you come at nighttime, you'll look, al look along and you'll see lights lighting up the horizon. 
Why is that? Because when you're producing oil, typically you produce natural gas along with it. Now that's great if you have a natural gas pipeline to capture that natural gas. But if you don't have a pipeline, you got a problem. Because you can't get the oil without the natural gas coming up. And if there's no pipeline, what do you do with it? Well, you have two options. You can release it in the atmosphere, which is terrible and not allowed. Or you can do what's called flaring. What is flaring? Literally lighting it on fire. So you look out over the horizon and you see flame after flame after flame, natural gas being flared. What does Bitcoin present the opportunity to do? At every one of those wells, capture that natural gas and use it to generate electricity that goes directly into mining with a mining rig right next to the west. That prevents the flaring, which is good for the environment, and it produces value in terms of the Bitcoin that is generated. Now, that's a win-win across the board, but there are actually additional benefits beyond that. Because as you're engaging in that Bitcoin mining, if you're connected to the grid, the more Bitcoin mining you have, the greater resilience the grid has. Listen, we've seen year after year after year the frailties of the grid in California as they have rolling brownouts and rolling blackouts predictably. We saw, unfortunately, a state of Texas with a massive freeze where the grid failed and millions lost electricity. One way to think of Bitcoin is as a battery. Why is that? Because if you're running rigs mining, consuming a significant amount of electricity, and suddenly there's a weather event or some other adverse event where the total store of electricity drops, those Bitcoin rigs can be turned off at a fraction of a second. And suddenly the energy that was going to Bitcoin mining can be instantly available to heat people's homes or cool people's homes or run businesses or keep the state going. Look, one of the challenges with electricity is it's very hard to store. Battery technology, we had a long way to go on battery technology. And so the grid is carefully calibrated between the electricity being produced and the demand, and where you have challenges on the grid are when you have a significant and unpredictable swing in one or the other. Either the supply drops or the demand spikes. And if that's unpredicted, that imbalance causes the challenges. Well, the beauty of Bitcoin, if you have a substantial amount of power generation going to Bitcoin mining, when the price of electricity exceeds the, the value that is being generated from mining Bitcoin at that point, those rigs can be turned off instantaneously, just like that vacuum cleaner. <laughs> but there's also a value, you know, this notion of, of Bitcoin mining as a battery is an interesting concept because it's not just an incentive to remediate pollution, remediate carbon emission, to pollute less and capture that natural gas, but it's also an incentive for renewables. 
Look, eventually we will move away from oil and gas. I don't think it's going to be nearly as soon as the Green New Deal totalitarians want it to be. But there will come a time when we do. And if you look at renewables, one of the challenges of renewables is that the wind blows in a lot of places that are in the middle of nowhere, and the sun shines in a lot of places in the middle of nowhere. And if you want to create assets to capture that energy, if you want to create windmills, if you want to create solar panels, it's an enormous problem if there aren't energy transmission lines. A bunch of solar panels on a really sunny place without any power lines are useless because they generate electricity and yet that you can't transfer the electricity to the users. If you think of Bitcoin mining as a battery, you have the ability to erect windmills or solar panels and next to them to put mining rigs where the power being generated goes straight to Bitcoin mining. But if you think of Bitcoin, if you think of a battery as a, a reservoir of value, you turn that energy from the sun or the wind into capital, into an asset that has value. What that does is make it economically attractive to build the alternative energy facilities in the first place. That from the first solar panel you put up, you could start capturing value. Which in turn, when you build a sufficient enough array, that it's economically viable, then you can put power transmission lines in place. But it gives you a first dollar and first minute opportunity to yield reward from your investment. I think Bitcoin and crypto generally has the potential to demonstrate and to generate enormous returns across the country. But I also believe government can screw it up. I will say I've spent more and more time lately talking to folks in the Bitcoin community and crypto community. And I do think there is a little bit of a utopian naivete among folks in those world, worlds who believe, you know, as Thanos said, we are inevitable. <laughs> well, maybe. But they may have thought that in China. Government has an enormous ability to screw things up. And I don't know how many of y'all have your El Salvadorian passports, but the U.S. federal government screwing it up would be massively destructive. And if you look at last year, when we we're taking up the massive infrastructure bill, buried within that bill was one provision that had the potential to wreak havoc on Bitcoin, defining almost everybody in the process of Bitcoin mining as a broker, requiring them to collect information on their customers, even though in many instances you could not do so. I can tell you, I stood up on the Senate floor and offered an amendment to strip that provision from the bill. 
Here's the terrifying thing. In the entire U.S. Senate, I'd be surprised if there were five senators who could tell you what the hell a Bitcoin is. Two of them, Cynthia and I, are standing in this room. And neither, not, nobody would hire either one of us to program anything. You know, Bismarck famously said there are two things you don't want to see being made, sausage and legislation. <laughs> the ability of the United States Congress with absolute whim and caprice to potentially destroy trillions of dollars of value is terrifying. When I offered my amendment to strip that provision, I had the wild and crazy view that we should actually know something about the thing we're regulating before we pass a law potentially destroying it. When I offered that amendment, the Democrats objected. Cynthia and I together and several others tried to do a second amendment that at least made it less harmful. Again, the Democrats objected. I would say the potential of government to mess this up, and by the way, the potential of this current administration to wreak enormous havoc when it comes to Bitcoin and crypto is difficult to overstate. So it's one of the reasons I'm really glad Heritage is hosting this, because it's easy to wake up. And by the way, how many of you all remember Napster? You know, Napster was unstoppable. It was inevitable until, boom, it was obliterated. And so if we see the potential for what Bitcoin represents, if we see the optimism, we need to be vigilant not to destroy it. Now, part of that is understanding the many policy questions and repercussions, whether it deals with tax treatment, whether it deals with regulatory treatment. There are big and hard new questions raised by Bitcoin and crypto generally. I hope this panel discussion will shine some light on some of those big and hard questions. But when it comes to something as consequential as this, I think we are well advised to proceed slowly and cautiously with a recognition that wreaking havoc is a terrible outcome. Thank you. Senator Cruz, great job. Thanks. We have time for a couple of questions because we have a couple of parts to this program. So I was going to ask you one, but I will defer to the audience. If you would, if you have a question, raise your hand. One of my colleagues will come around with a mic. You know the drill. So any questions? One all the way in the back. Yes, ma'am. Right there in the middle. Raise your hand again. There you go. Thank you. Hi. I'm um, sorry. Tiana Law, Washington Examiner. So you talk about sort of the global capacity for Bitcoin's utility, um, independent of sort of price levels or any of that mattering. I do wonder what we're seeing right now in, as you pointed out, El Salvador with, you know, the IMF putting a lot of threats on further restrictions for their currency capacities. Uh, we saw with, the, with Putin's invasion of Ukraine, a lot of, you know, threats to try and destabilize Bitcoin in Russia. And obviously that's been a bulwark. 
but how even, you know, it's not as though universal internet access is guaranteed and it's not as though there aren't, uh, there is not a regulatory code that protects countries from ever coming under, you know, the jurisdiction of the IMF. How does the U.S. sort of enhance Bitcoin's utility globally when those are very real threats to how it can be used? Yeah, look, the, those are good questions, and, and I will say how different governments approach it is a question that's going to play out in, in the months and years to come. Uh, with a developing country like El Salvador making Bitcoin legal tender, that has enormous upsides. That potentially has some risks. Uh, but I understand why that's an attractive policy option to a government like El Salvador. It doesn't surprise me also that centralized banks and organizations like the IMF are skeptical of that. Any government agency that wants control is going to resist tools that make control more difficult. It's, it's part of the same reason why you see there, there's a sizable number of regulators who don't like cash, who despise cash. Why? Because cash is uncontrollable. Uh, we saw in, in the Democrats' Build Back Broke bill, <laughs> their proposal to require banks to report on every banking transaction that exceeds $600. Literally, when you pay your rent every month, unless any of y'all are college interns living with seven roommates in DC, <laughs> you're spending more than 600 bucks a month on your rent. And it would require every time you do that, heck, soon it's liable to be that to fill up a tank of gas. <laughs> Yes, there will be ongoing efforts to increase government's ability to monitor what's happening. I think we should be resistant to those efforts. And, and, and that's not going to be a one-time resistance. I very much worry about the Biden administration and their taking marching orders from the voices in the Democratic Party like Elizabeth Warren that the steps we may see in the next two and a half years could wreak enormous damage. And the only answer I know to that is, is sunlight and scrutiny and, and vigilance, because I think that threat is very real. Thanks for that question, as well as for your answer, Senator. I know we're dealing with your schedule and ours. So we'll take one more question before we wrap this segment. And anyone on this side of the theater going once, going twice, this gentleman all the way in the back right there has a question. Go for it. Hi, Doug Blair with The Daily Signal. Um, we've been hearing whisperings of a digital dollar, which seems to be the new evolution of fiat currency, at least from the American you know, central bank. What are your thoughts on the digital dollar? How will it impact the way we use money? How will it impact the economy? So I think a central bank digital currency is a horrific idea. Um, I think it is an incredibly dangerous idea. I think it is the exact opposite of what Bitcoin and crypto promises more generally. Um, I've introduced legislation in the Senate that would ban the Fed from introducing a central bank digital currency. Why do we want to do that? Because for the Fed to do that, its principal value would be as a tool for monitoring our financial transactions. It would be an effort to reassert a government monopoly over currency. Um, we're, we are seeing China going down that road for the same reason. The reason they hate Bitcoin is the reason why it's attractive to have a central bank digital currency 
that they control. I think we ought to resist it. Uh, I believe in, in Congress we ought to pass legislation blocking it. Uh, you know, I can tell you Jay Powell at the Fed initially suggested some resistance to it, but in the process of being renominated, he had to play footsie with, with a lot of the folks on the left of the Democratic Party. And he's expressed a lot greater openness to going down that, ro that road than not. When he sat in my office, he sounded fantastic on the issue. <laughs> but somehow, when he sits in Sherrod Brown's office, he says something different. Um, it's dangerous. And let me make a broader comment about the Bitcoin community generally. I think Bitcoin and crypto today is where Silicon Valley was 15 years ago. So 15 years ago, Silicon Valley was at a, a crossroads. They could have gone down the road to becoming a, a libertarian, leave me the hell alone, entrepreneurial utopia. Or they could have chosen door number two and becoming woke nanny state socialist nitwits. Unfortunately, Silicon Valley chose door number two. Bitcoin and crypto is at that same decision point right now. There are people, there are young entrepreneurs who are making vast amounts of money right now, who are redefining, and I, look, I define Bitcoin and crypto. One of the interesting things as I've gone through the process of starting to get educated about this is there's a real divide between Bitcoin purists <laughs> and those who are not Bitcoin purists. I'm relatively agnostic on that divide. Personally, I'm an investor in Bitcoin, so I have invested my own money in Bitcoin. I will say it was interesting. So I have a weekly buy that's an automatic buy every week of Bitcoin because I believe in dollar cost averaging. I'm not smart enough to play the market if I invest the same amount every month, every week. That ought to work out. I did make a buy a few months ago of $25,000. We had to file a Senate disclosure when I did that, and the press went nuts. It was really quite amusing that, and listen, I believe in Bitcoin and so wanted to have a portion of our portfolio in it. Not a massive portion, but a, but a portion of it. Um, other forms of crypto, I'll confess I understand less well, and so my risk tolerance is I'm a little more hesitant to go there myself. But I will say, you know, when you talk to folks in the Bitcoin and crypto com community, it's interesting. There are a lot of folks who a few years ago, I think, kind of considered themselves Bernie bros. And they were relatively apolitical and, you know, make love, not war sounded attractive. And I think in the last year or two, watching the jackbooted thugs of the statists express unrelenting hostility to Bitcoin and crypto. I think it startled a lot of people. I'm not necessarily saying it's woken them up. I think many of them still believe that technology is on their side and centralized fiat currency will collapse of its own weight. Maybe. It's more likely to happen if government policy doesn't screw this all up. But I think we have an opportunity. It's one of the reasons I want Texas to be the oasis on planet Earth for Bitcoin and crypto. You come to Texas, you come to Austin, we're seeing massive numbers of people fleeing 
places like California and coming to Texas. I think that is a wonderful phenomenon, but I also think there's a broader need in the community to communicate, look, if, if you value freedom, if you value the government being left alone, then maybe it's not in your interest to support people that want unlimited government power to control everything you're doing. That a libertarian ethos is a really powerful, powerful approach. And I hope Bitcoin chooses door number one and not door number two, but I think we won't know that for another five or ten years. Well, would all of you please join me in thanking Senator Ted Cruz for this Senator, thanks again. And those of you who have questions that we weren't able to get to, you just sit tight because we have another Q&A period coming up. And we go from one great senator from Texas to another great senator from Wyoming. Senator Cynthia Lummis is another great defender of Bitcoin, another friend of mine. Had the privilege of living in both places, Texas and Wyoming. She's a member of the Committee on Environment and Public Works, Committee on Commerce, Science and Transportation, and Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Development. She's a leader on Bitcoin in the Senate and was one of the first public officials in the United States to endorse this for all of the reasons we understand. She will be joined on this star-studded panel by Michael Saylor, who's one of the most prominent and respected voices in Bitcoin. He's the CEO of MicroStrategy and founder of Saylor Academy, a nonprofit organization that has provided free education to over a million students. Michael, as you may know, holds over 40 patents and holds dual degrees from MIT in aerospace engineering and the history of science. Joining Senator Lummis and Michael is Caitlin Long, yet another impressive patriot. Caitlin's a serial entrepreneur as well as founder and CEO of Wyoming's Custodia Bank. After 22 years on Wall Street, Caitlin discovered Austrian economics, and that led her to Bitcoin. So with a panel that features two great Wyoming women and Michael Saylor, and is moderated by my friend and colleague Peter St. Onge, research fellow in economic policy, you're in for a heck of a show. Y'all please welcome them. so many people here tonight and it is an enormous honor to have this panel here three really incredible people it's honestly a bit intimidating so uh, I'm gonna jump back in or uh, jump right into the questions here I have a lot of uh, interesting things to discuss today uh, so Michael uh, can I start with you uh, why should regular Americans care about Bitcoin well, the nation was founded by people that um, were looking for freedom and property rights, and that's why they left Europe. At, at one point, at one, my family came from Lucerne, Switzerland. They were Palatines, and I, I think at some point Protestants in Catholic Europe couldn't own a job or own property or have a job, and so they came to America. And then, of course, the opposite is a bunch of Catholics from Northern Europe had to come to America for the opposite reason. So the American dream was always go west get property, live your life, live happily ever after. 
And after we all got here to Virginia, if we were Protestant, or to Maryland, if we were Catholic, or to <laughs> Pennsylvania, if we were neither, but Quaker. <laughs> after we got here and it got too crowded, everybody went west again, right? To the Great West, to Wyoming, and they wanted land. And now the world is just full of people and you can't go west anymore. So, and, and we can't really all go to outer space because space travel is too expensive. So where we can go is we can go to cyberspace. And what if you want, or if what you want is the American dream, you want property rights and freedom and sovereignty, then you can move your life force, your life savings, your economic energy, your property into cyberspace where you might have the hope for freedom and sovereignty and, and truth and, and a decent life. And that's the American dream. Thank you. Um, next, uh, Senator Lummis, uh, I'd like to ask you, uh, Bitcoin is becoming more prominent in public policy discussions really across the country. What potential common ground exists between conservatives and Bitcoin? Well, thanks uh, for this great panel and these great experts on uh, Bitcoin, and it's lovely to be here with you this evening. The common ground is looking for the sweet spot between not stifling innovation, but rather encouraging innovation, while at the same time creating a regulatory framework that everyone understands. The reason for doing this is if someone wants to interact between Bitcoin and the US dollar, the US dollar and keepers of it and the Fed need to consent, uh, need to have a way to communicate back and forth between Bitcoin and the US dollar. And so it is important that we have uh, a regulatory framework that presents a light touch uh, for those who want to innovate in this space that do want to have some interaction with the US dollar. And we're working on that. Our bill, in fact, will be um, in, filed. Uh, it is a very comprehensive bill. It will be filed on June 7th. Uh, it includes uh, coins that are commodities, uh, coins that are securities, it includes stable coins. It includes a discussion of CDBCs in, and consistent with what we heard earlier. Uh, and uh, a small um, nod to NFTs. It includes uh, algorithmic as well as um, asset-backed stable coins. It includes definitions, consumer protection, privacy, taxation, uh, and several other components of the discussion as it relates to all this using the existing regulatory framework. So as you can see, it's a, it's a long bill. It's comprehensive. We've had it vetted uh, for uh, months. Michael Saylor was one of our first uh, set of eyes on it, of course, because his expertise is uh, longstanding. Uh, and we want to make sure that we have lots of input before we file it. It's going to be bipartisan. Uh, it's been broadly vetted by people in both parties. It's been broadly vetted by uh, both bureaucrats and regulators, as well as the uh, innovative community. 
So we think we're on the right track. We hope we have found that sweet spot. And we want to encourage people to continue to help us find the sweet spot so we're not stifling innovation, but we're creating a simple regulatory framework that's understood. Uh, Caitlin, I'd like to ask you, uh, so how do you see Bitcoin impacting Wall Street and the broader American financial industry? Well, the biggest impact is going to be in the payments space. Uh, the Lightning Network is a much better, faster, cheaper way of moving money. Uh, Stablecoins are as well. Uh, and what that's going to do is massively change the liquidity needs of the banking system. The banking, the liquidity in the banking sector has been fine-tuned over the decades for the bank run risk that, that does happen. And uh, it, it's pretty rare these days to have a, a bank run. Banks traditionally use leverage and take credit and interest rate risk, but they get away with that because not everybody wants to withdraw at the same time. We have not had the ability to take massive withdrawals in real time. The banks call your deposits demand deposits, but they're not really available on demand because it takes a day typically, or at minimum hours if you're using Fedwire, a day or two if you're using ACH for you to withdraw your money. And that, that time period covers up a lot of operational issues that can happen, including a potential for a bank run. What we just experienced with the Terra Luna situation is that crypto settles very, very fast. And that literally collapsed within the span of hours. And so once you speed up the settlement cycle for payments in the, in the banking system, inherently, the banks are not going to be as leveraged as they are today. And they're going to need a lot more liquidity than they have been sitting on historically. All that fine-tuning of the liquidity needs of the system is going to be thrown into upheaval. This was happening anyway with FedNow coming online. That's a 24-7, 365 Fed dollar that's not issued on a blockchain. Whenever that does come online, especially uh, it's targeted for next year, but it keeps getting pushed back. We'll see. Uh, but when that does come online, the banks are going to have to sit on a lot of cash. And that's not what they're doing now. And that is a massive change. Now, if you overlay stable coins and start overlaying non-dollar payment instruments like Bitcoin, um, that changes a, a lot of things. It's, it's going to be a, a, a period of upheaval in the banking system for sure. That, I'm glad you brought up Luna because I was actually going to ask you that later. Uh, so the Luna collapse was one of the largest uh, in the history of the cryptocurrency space. Uh, but of course, Bitcoin and Luna work very, very differently. Um, so people who are using the Luna collapse to question uh, Bitcoin itself, how would you respond to that? Bitcoin is in a different universe. Burn it all down. That, everything else that that was a, that Luna was a was a Ponzi scheme, and there were people outright calling it um, the Anchor Protocol specifically a Ponzi scheme in our industry, and, and a lot of folks uh, were very outspoken against it. I don't speak about specific protocols, but I do talk about the staggering amount of leverage in the Bitcoin markets. Wall Street tried to come in and financialize in a bad way this asset class, and we have seen Ponzi schemes, we've seen scams, we've seen just 
outright too much leverage on an asset that's negatively convex where that leverage really can't be hedged away, you will see counterparty failures. And my attitude is burn it all down because Bitcoin will be the phoenix that rises from the horizon and you don't need to leverage your Bitcoin. Nice. Burn it all down, the phoenix will rise. I love it. Uh, uh, Michael, uh, next to you. Uh, so this is on hard money. Uh, hard money, as you know, was a constant through most of our nation's history. Uh, since the abdication of the gold standard in the 1970s, the dollar has had no hard anchor against inflation. Can Bitcoin help the U.S. return to that era of sound money? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Uh, I get more? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I think uh, once you, if you think about money as economic energy and you think about a currency as the fluid through which the energy moves, then gold, if gold was your money and if the gold supply is expanding at 2% a year, then that means the half-life of the energy in gold or the half-life of gold money is about 35 years. Uh, when that inflation rate drops to 1% a year, if you could do that, the half-life becomes 70 years. But the ha in fact, the, the long-term inflation rate of Bitcoin is zero. So the half-life of, of money in Bitcoin is infinite. It's immortal. It's, it's not twice as good as gold. It's a million times better than gold. And, uh, and ultimately, this is all about fixing the energy balance in the civilization you know, if, I, if you had a family of athletes and every month a bureaucrat showed up and, and they took a pint of blood from everybody in your family and then you went out and you ran marathons, you wouldn't do it so well. And if they kept coming every single month, that would be bad. And if they kept coming every week, that would be really bad. In fact, that's what inflation is. We're just sucking the oxygen out of your blood, except inflation is sucking the energy out of the currency. And uh, so if you... We sort of had semi-hard money, but the reason that the gold standard worked was the economy grew 2% a year and gold inflated at 2% a year and everything kind of stayed constant. If you had really hard money and you grew, you grew the money supply 0% a year and the economy grew 2% a year, means everything you want would get 2% cheaper every year of your life and you could literally save money and wait and in 10 years you could buy much, much more with the same money. So Bitcoin solves the problem theoretically in the right fashion. And if the civilization starts to adopt it as a primary treasury reserve asset, it's like saying, no, this month you're not going to get to bleed a pint of blood out of me. I'm keeping all my blood. And for anybody who's an athlete, you just consider whether or not you would prefer to be an athlete not getting bled to death or whether you would allow some politician to keep sucking a pint of your blood out of your body whenever they want. It's just really horrific performance <laughs> problem. We've got some super metaphors going here tonight. I appreciate it. I love the way engineers speak about Bitcoin. Michael's got such a terrific perspective. Uh, Senator Lemus, uh, I'd like to ask you another question. Uh, according to many polls, uh, inflation is the biggest issue for Americans today. And by the way, that's cross-party. Uh, which is very rare for everybody to be afraid of the same thing at this. Uh, how do you see Bitcoin fitting into the inflation discussion? Well, the great thing about Bitcoin is it's limited supply. There will only be 20 million Bitcoin ever mined. Every four years, they cut the number of Bitcoin being mined in half. Uh, the algorithms get more and more difficult to solve. 
Uh, and um, every 10 minutes, there's a few more uh, fractions of a Bitcoin mined. So it's on a steady path. Nothing about fiat currency is on a steady path. The government can print more money willy-nilly. And we do, as you know. When I first arrived uh, in the U.S. House of Representatives, uh, January of 2009, we just crossed the threshold between uh, 9 and 10 trillion in national debt. And now we're over 30 trillion in, in, in national debt. And there's no discussion in the U.S. House or the U.S. Senate about repurposing other money uh, to meet the needs of today. For example, uh, the bill that we just passed last week, uh, sending uh, $40 billion more to Ukraine, um, that was not money that was repurposed from uh, excess COVID money that hasn't been spent uh, or coming from another source that hasn't been spent. It's new money. It's new money being printed. And we're doing that every week with every bill. Uh, because of that, we're guaranteeing that the U.S. dollar uh, is going to uh, be everywhere to try and solve every problem and hold less and less value while it's doing it. So the fact that a Bitcoin portfolio is immune from all of that makes it, uh, as Michael Saylor just said, uh, a million times uh, more stable. No one controls the levers of Bitcoin. Uh, it is going to play out mathematically exactly how it was designed in the white paper. And it's predictable. Nothing about what the Congress is doing is predictable, except for the fact that we're going to print more money than we take in. Our value, our dollar is going to be worth less and less all the time. And that nobody cares, neither party. Both parties are responsible for this. Thank you. And uh, speaking of both parties, Caitlin, I'd like to ask you a question. Uh, the Fed is considering issuing a China-style state-run currency. Senator Cruz had some excellent remarks about that earlier. Uh, the question I have for you uh, is that one of the justifications for chasing a CBDC is that we have to keep up with the Chinese. And this is indeed coming from both parties, unfortunately. Uh, given, you know, you spoke earlier about payments, uh, if you could go into a bit more detail why Bitcoin makes that sort of thinking unnecessary. Well, it's a private sector version that will inherently hit network effects a lot faster than any government version. It will probably take them years, even if they do try to get it out. Uh, and then will people actually use it? Uh, these are network effects businesses and the private versions are getting there and building network effects faster. There is an important point about privacy um, where I would disagree with Senator Cruz, not in his concept, it's in the reality. None of us have any privacy whatsoever today in our financial transactions. 
And so it is a misnomer to say that a CBDC would, ha would give us less privacy than we have today. It would just put it out there more openly that we have no privacy in our financial transactions. The difference is if the Fed itself were to issue a CBDC, it would directly have access to all of those transactions. But if you, I'm starting a bank, I see how this works. Uh, there is zero privacy because law enforcement can get every transaction ever done by any of us at any point in time. And they don't even need probable cause to do that because they'll just ask the banks, the banks are regulated, the banks are 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 graded on how cooperative they are with their regulators. So what do you think the regulators are going the, the banks are going to do when a regulator calls and says I want XYZ's financial transactions? There was a, an unmasking of a government official a couple of years ago and um, what happened in when that unmasking took place was that every financial transaction that he had ever done and every ping of his cell phone was now available to the to those who had unmasked. And why is that? Because all that data is collected on us already. And so I don't think a CBDC makes it any worse. It just puts it out there for everyone to realize. Thank you. Uh, Michael, uh, I'd like to ask you, uh, so Senator Cruz had some comments on uh, Bitcoin ener and energy. Uh, as you know, that is a common uh, criticism, um, Bitcoin's impact on energy. Uh, what do these criticisms get wrong, uh, and specifically criticisms that are based on a sort of proof-of-stake versus proof-of-work type model? Um, well, I mean, the, the first principle is, is that uh, Satoshi's uh, invention of Nakamoto consensus gave us a, a fair, equitable, ethical mechanism to create a digital commodity. If I wanted to create a, a block of digital energy, people say, What's, what is Bitcoin backed by? Well, it's actually backed by energy. In fact, an, an encrypted energy or a SHA-256 digitized energy. And there's $20 billion worth of Bitcoin miners that are protecting and creating that energy right now. If you, um, if you replace all the semiconductors and all the energy that's, that's creating the Bitcoin and protecting the network, with imaginary validators and imaginary nodes, you get imaginary security on imaginary asset. And, and uh, from a legal point of view, that becomes a security, which is a, a problem legally. But from a practical point of view, it's no longer a scarce commodity. It's a plentiful security. You end up with 20,000 copies and then everybody that creates one breaks off and creates another one, because why wouldn't you just keep creating copies of something which is easy to cut and paste? So uh, the fundamental premise of Bitcoin is I use energy and semiconductors in order to create something, a block of digital energy, which will last forever, which is immortal, indestructible, you know, which you can move at the speed of light, right? We're digitizing energy. Um, the reason that the energy usage is not a bad thing is because for the most, first of all, it's, it's really digital energy. You're feeding in a tenth of a percent of the civilization's energy to create something which will last forever, which is indestructible, which is not that much when you think about it, a tenth of one percent of energy to create something which could be the basis of the entire financial system of the world, right? But uh, the second reason that it's not really a problem is 
the tenth of one percent of the energy is all marginal stranded waste energy that that you couldn't really use for any other purpose anyway. It's basically wholesale stranded energy, generally paid for at like two cents a kilowatt hour. And if you study energy, you know that, that the, the retail rates for industries and people are 10 to 20 cents a kilowatt hour. The entire network is running on a thimble full of energy at the edge of the grid that nobody else wants. And we're recycling that stranded, wasted energy into digital energy, which will last forever, move at the speed of light, and you can build any number of beautiful, elegant things on top of it, right, with no friction. And, uh, and so, you know, why wouldn't you want to do that? Great. Yeah, the, the fiat financial system uses something like 10 to 20% of all the energy in the world. So, right, of course. There's <laughs> uh, Senator, uh, I'd like to give you uh, the last question. Uh, what are the biggest things lawmakers and regulators need to get right about Bitcoin? And what do you think are the biggest pitfalls that they risk? Um, I'll start with the biggest pitfalls. The pitfalls will be to overregulate and to not leave space for innovation. Caitlin Long mentioned the Lightning Network. Right now, you can use uh, Bitcoin as a means of payment. But a year ago, before the Lightning Network was fully um, uh, lit up, you couldn't. I mean, that's how fast this innovation is occurring. Um, this young guy named Jack Mathers, Mallers with Strike uh, just executed a deal with Amazon. Uh, so you can put your credit card in a machine the, as the payor, the payee, which is like Whole Foods, gets that money instantaneously because it's converted to Bitcoin. And if they want to convert it back to U.S. dollar on the other end, they can. But the point is, the float is gone. They're getting it at lightning speed. Uh, and so the friction uh, that Michael Saylor just explained is kind of gone from the banking system. So when you think about all of the benefits to our current banking system of that friction uh, allowing them to transact uh, during that frictional phase of transacting, um, financial costs amount to 7.5% of this nation's GDP. Unbelievable. Some of that's going to be taken out of the system. Uh, and it's going, those values are going to be to the person paid uh, or uh, to the peer-to-peer -peer transactors, such as the son and daughter working in the United States that are sending remittances to the mother in uh, El Salvador. Um, she doesn't have to pay the transaction fee to Western Union. Uh, it's sent on the phone. It comes on the phone. She can begin buying groceries immediately. Um, that's the kind of thing that our regulatory regime needs to protect. To allow these kinds of innovations to occur without over-regulating them. 
So I think the risk is to overregulate and to assume that uh, what we know today about the capabilities of the distributed ledger uh, are, are just in their earliest stages and that, that what can happen with this is going to be so transformative that we can't even envision it right now. Then you lay on top of it what Ted Cruz said. I think, I think he was being generous when he said last summer uh, there were five senators who understood this and recognized the problem with the definition of broker. That, that's a much more generous number than I would have used. So what we're trying to do is educate our colleagues uh, about um, the message that was delivered earlier by Senator Cruz, the message you're hearing now, and both Michael and Caitlin have been instrumental in sitting down with members of uh, the U.S. Senate in small groups and just taking them through this little by little. Because conceptually, uh, it, it's so different from what we're used to that it's hard for senators to wrap their head around it and then to try to figure out how to regulating something that you can't see or touch uh, is a challenge for them, uh, for us. Uh, and so, uh, but the advantages are if we get it right, we get this framework right. There are people in other countries who are trying to get this right at the same time we do. There are people in Canada in England, in uh, Australia, uh, in Jordan, uh, and other countries all over the world that want to get this right. And they recognize the types of game-changing, transformative global interactions that can be taken advantage of if we get this right. So I think the good news right now is that there's a small cadre of people who may not understand the mechanics of it as well as Caitlin and Michael do, but we understand the political freedom and the potential it can bring for humankind if we get this right. And there are people of goodwill who want to get this right, who want to be the, the, the political uh, Satoshi Nakamoto's who say, this person got it right, or this um, group of people got it right. Let's not mess it up. Thank you. Uh, I would like to open it up to questions. Okay, first our hand us off. Eric Peterson, the Pelican Institute. Uh, Cindy, you talked a little bit about the Terra Luna collapse, um, and you know it doesn't really matter for Bitcoin, but as uh, Senator Lummis I think would, would realize is that these sort of large collapses where people lose a lot of money creates a call for government action. How do we make sure that um, there's a difference in understanding between different kinds of coins and different sorts of products and they're not all regulated in the same way or that one product failing doesn't uh, cause undue uh, regulatory burns on another kind of product? Is that for me? Yeah, you yeah. said it let, let the markets decide. The market did a pretty darn good job of the leverage flush. 
of of what happened in Terra Luna. It's tragic, of course, that so many people were taken in by that, but it's not going to happen again. There are there are others who are trying to offer 40% annualized yields on on their stablecoin, uh, and and they're not um, getting network effects. Let let's put it that way. Um, and so I, I think the best thing that our industry can do is call out those kinds of bad behaviors ourselves to the best extent possible, as many in the industry did. And, uh, it, but it, will it be used it, uh, for regulation? Yes, unfortunately. And that's why Senator Lummis's bill, I think, is so important to, because it does make the distinction. And as you know, not all cryptocurrencies are created alike. Uh, among the things that also happened within the last 30 days was uh, the Coinbase um, uh, concerned that if it went bankrupt, that the uh, Bitcoin uh, within Coinbase actually belonged to the owners of Coinbase, not to uh, the people who uh, were being having their Bitcoin custodied by Coinbase. So we all need to understand, not your keys, not your coin, <laughs> not your keys, not your coin. If you don't have the password or whatever you want to call it to get your coin, then it's not your coin. And these are the kind of things that we're all learning in real time as they play out uh, and that need to be, once again, contemplated within a regulatory framework, but not regulated to the point where it stifles innovation, and it's going to be tough because there are there are frauds out there, there are scams out there, uh, and uh, I worry that people conflate all cryptocurrencies, uh, and they're not all created alike. I I, I would add. Um I think that uh, Terra Luna collapse is going to be good for the industry. There's, it's going to accelerate good regulation. Not all regulation is bad regulation. If you go to CoinMarketCap, there's 19,500 cryptos out there, and there's massive confusion. And a shakeout in the industry would be advantageous because the average mere mortal doesn't have time to study 19,500 cryptocurrencies. And there is a bona fide large demand for, uh, for stable coin that's safe and transparent. And it's been difficult for legitimate institutions like Caitlin's Bank to, to issue those stable coins because there's been a regulatory deadlock in DC. Like people know they need to do something, but there was no urgency to do it. And I think now this is front and center at Treasury and in the administration and in Congress. And I expect that whatever kind of clarity was going to come is going to come faster because now there's a, a reason to accelerate the pace. And uh, I mean, some people think like uh, Bitcoin benefits from anarchy or lack of regulation. That's not true. In fact, uh, I think Ken Griffin said this last week, the CEO of Citadel, he said, he said uh, the entire industry deserves, deserves clarity we need to understand what's a security. We need to understand what's a currency. We need to understand what's a commodity. And if uh, the SEC does this or gets together with the CFTC and issues some guidance, tier one firms like his, 
Citadel, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, they can all start to get involved. And then what we'd like to see is everybody want to play in the industry, big investors bring money into the industry. And then the banks, you might have seen David Solomon was on CNBC a couple of days ago, and they asked him, do you custody Bitcoin or crypto? And he said, no, no, we can't. Okay, well, there's a little, can you as a bank custody it? Can you not as a bank custody it? When I talk to the CEOs of publicly traded FDIC insured banks, they go, oh, we can't issue stable coin. Our regulator won't let us. So uh, at the point that there's more clarity, I think the banks will get involved, the investors will get involved, lots of people will get involved, and of course the bad actors and uh, malicious scammers will get squeezed out of the industry because not all these things are alike. They are, they are very different. And uh, the general retail population, they don't have a choice between taking a stable coin from a bank or a stable coin from from uh, an organization that, uh, you know, ETFs disclose their holdings every day, right? And how about every week, every month, every year? Right now, 70% of the stable coin in the market, there's no disclosure even in a year of precisely what's backing it. So the mar and the market wants a trillion dollars worth of this stuff. Everybody wants it. I can't get it. And the banks that could provide it aren't allowed to offer it. And so we're kind of in this kind of deadlock. And if it took the Terra Luna blow up in order to unstick that, I mean, I don't, it's bad for them, but it will ultimately result in, a, in an industry that's more mature and more functional. For all the gnashing of teeth that the bank regulators have done over this, the Fed has been sitting on Custodia's application for 19 months with an actual proposal to issue a digital dollar in the form of a digital cashier's check. And when we applied, our application said that processing may take five to seven business days. It's been 19 months. So I would posit, I would pose the question directly to the Federal Reserve, why have you sat on this when the scams have been allowed to take place? And it's not right to look at it and say, well, this needs to get into the regulatory perimeter. They have had the actual ability to have this inside the regulatory perimeter for 19 months, and the scams that have taken place in that interim period of time, it is an interesting question we'll never know the answer to. Would they have been a proliferating had there been an actual approved version of this? Uh, I'll throw out another interesting factoid I haven't spoken about publicly. Since my bank decided to apply to become a Fed member bank to try to accelerate the regulatory oversight, we're, we're, we are literally planning to hold a dollar eight cents in cash on deposit at the Fed against every dollar of deposit in our bank. Um, this is as safe as we possibly can be, so we decide to become a Fed member bank. The Fed removed that language from the master account application about processing five to seven business days two weeks after we applied to become a Fed member bank. That's what we're up against. That's astounding. So you would be much safer than Wall Street, indeed. Far safer. <laughs> yep. A dollar eight cents for every dollar of cash deposited, which means that we could survive a bank run because remember these things settle within minutes right and so what i said earlier about needing to, to sit on liquidity we are literally the most we're proposing to be the most liquid bank in the united states but that's how you how you make sure that you don't trip over 
the crypto risk into the mainstream financial system that is not designed to handle it. And I do worry because there are now hundreds of banks and credit unions making loans against Bitcoin and, uh, and the loss given default if the custodian is hacked on those loans is 100 cents on the dollar. So the, the regulators are not wrong that there is a potential for this to, to bleed into the financial system. There are safe and sound ways to plug the two together. And that's what the state of Wyoming set up. Um, and then the bankruptcy risk with Coinbase, Wyoming designed a specific custody regime to solve that very problem, but we've been blocked by the Fed. Peter, among the things that has to happen, and I believe will happen as part of this, is the absolute lack of responsiveness and transparency at the Federal Reserve has got to change. Applause reminded me that, Senator, we do have to let you, <laughs> she, Senator, had a previous engagement, so please give the panel a hand. <laughs> and uh, you guys are going to stick around for a little bit longer, if that's okay. Um, do we have, I'm certain that we have a lot more questions. Okay, I have a question. Um, Dan Spooler with Blockchain Association. I'm fascinated by the uh, corporate adoption of Bitcoin on the balance sheets, and I think that's only going to continue to grow and it's inevitable. Uh, Mr. Seller, I'm wondering if you could explain uh, what are some of the challenges you think of additional companies and competitive companies adopting They eventually will. And do you think it's going to continue to grow as, I mean, you pioneered this with MicroStrategy, and we've seen it with MassMutual, we've seen it with Tesla. I mean, the first order challenge is that the current accounting is toxic, toxic and prejudicial, right? It's indefinite and intangible accounting, which means if you buy it, you can only mark it down. You can never mark it up forever. And uh, the toxicity, then uh, it obscures your balance sheet, but it also filters into your P&L. So uh, that's kept most conservative CFOs from wanting to pursue it. FASB's got a project to review the accounting for digital assets. So I think if FASB actually implements anything looking more like fair value accounting, that would be a big, uh, a big auspicious thing. Uh, I think after that, the second order issues are if uh, the SEC approves a, a, a spot ETF, the, if, uh, if Treasury or someone gives, uh, gives FDIC banks or any kind of chartered bank, a state chartered bank like Caitlin's Bank, the ability to issue a stable coin, that'll accelerate the industry. I think if the SEC regulates the crypto exchanges as national securities exchanges, that will actually accelerate corporate adoption. I think if they mandate full and fair disclosure for all the unregistered securities that are trading in the crypto industry, like the Lunas and the Terras just melted down, that'll shake out all of the garbage, that will accelerate a flight to quality. And to Ken Griffin's point, there's just a lot of public institutional investors that they won't touch it because it's like you're slimed by association with the garbage. Right, Bitcoin is backed by $20 billion worth of semiconductors and hardware and energy. And then, uh, you know, yo-yo coin number 97 was ginned up in the basement of some dude <laughs> in some place that is located behind a tour node. And you just don't even know who that is. 
And so if you're a, if you're a uh, mainstream investor, you know, the Charlie Mungers and the Warren Buffetts of the world, they're not going to dig into this. They're just going to read something and they come to a very quick conclusion. And like it or not, people with less knowledge than you have more money than you. And the market is dominated by them. So you want to see more corporate adoption, right? You need the FDIC, the Fed, Treasury, the SEC, CFTC, they all need to move forward. FASB has a big role to play. And the only, the good news here is everything I just named is highly predictable. It will happen. It's just a question of does it happen in six months, 36 months, right? 60 months, right? And you have to decide. Okay, do we, yes. Thanks very much. Jonathan Melton, Silvergate Bank. Question for Mr. Saylor. Um, along the lines of the previous question, I'm thinking on a geopolitical um, perspective, you know, if the United States if, you know, adopts the view that Bitcoin is relevant 100 years from now, um, what are some suggestions that you would make for America to be a winner out of that? You know, is it, you know, specifically the accounting to the Fed by Bitcoin? something related to mining, you know, with a group of policy folks, I'm interested in your business perspective. Well, I mean, first I'd, I'd observe that um, everybody had the ability to harness fire, right? And then along comes electricity, and then we put energy into a barrel of oil, liquid energy, and anybody could have actually harnessed uh, the power of liquid energy, but the nation that did was the United States, and, and although he's demonized many, many years after his death, John D. Rockefeller was the reason the United States, and Standard Oil was the reason the United States became the world leader in liquid energy. And, uh, you know, liquid energy gave way to electromagnetic energy. We got good at that, and along the way we, we harnessed air power, and then after that, atomic power, and that Atomic power, air power, and oil had some impact on the United States, you know, success throughout the 20th century. So this is digital energy, right? This is the ability to project power in cyberspace. And it's the consequence of the U.S. is similar, you know. Do you want to have the most cyber power and the most space power and the most air power and the most nuclear power, or do you not? And, like, how do you do it? You mine it. You, you own it, and then you build the, you build, uh, the banking operation, right? What, you, what you've got is a bunch of energy. You want to move it at the speed of light. You want to borrow against it. You want to lend against it. You want to transfer it. You want to create more of it. You want to upgrade it with layer two and layer three applications. And the reason that this is a no-brainer for America is because Ultimately, it's American companies and, and, and uh, American investors and American banks that are in the best position to harness and take advantage of this. If we don't, right, some other country will. And I, we didn't talk about it much, uh, but one of the important things about Bitcoin is it delivers conservation of energy to cyberspace. And what that means is you can actually instantiate matter and energy in cyberspace. And if you want to create a wall in cyberspace, you need actual energy to create the wall. And so what that means is that the future of cyber security and cyber warfare is going to be about maneuvering energy in cyberspace. And, you know, if you don't have it, it's kind of like not having satellites and the GPS system you're, or not having air superiority, right? 
you will lose control of your airspace, your country is getting bombed back to the Stone Age. So this is really critical to the domination and the security of America in the next hundred years. And the way you, the way you actually benefit from it is just harness it, right? Use it, own it, master it, understand it. So the single most significant geopolitical event in the last um, several years was China's decision to ban Bitcoin, for example. The reason that Michael is talking about, um, and and yeah, single most significant uh, geopolitical decision was China's decision to ban Bitcoin. The the question is really is the U.S. going to shoot ourselves in the foot and do the same? There are certainly people who are pretty outspoken who are trying to do the same. Uh, do we have a question from this side over here? I've neglected. Yes. Thank you. Um, really respect a lot of the work you both have, have done. It's been pretty incredible to be on this journey for a little bit with you, so thank you. Just wanted to kind of dig into the geopolitics a little bit more and the juxtaposition between the CCP and, and kind of some of us are looking at, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative, right? So you have infrastructure, so energy ports, payments, right? So the, the digital yuan. Do you see Bitcoin as kind of the kind of Western values wrapped up to kind of come and counteract that a little bit around the world? Um. Yeah, I mean, I, I do. I mean, China, China has a you know a, a tendency to put a bunch of stuff behind the the Great Wall of China, right? So they they banned Google and they blocked Facebook and they blocked Twitter and they they blocked all sorts of uh, of Western technology. And we saw the Western at Western Europe and United States spin up one ecosystem that was. Uh, wrapped around American values, the English language, the dollar, and, uh, and U.S. technology. And that's a very powerful system, and that probably dominates whatever you, four or five billion people. And then the Chinese have about two billion people, you know, in the China net, and they built their full stack, their language, the CNY, their currency, their values, their law, their technology. I think that uh, Bitcoin is, you know, it has the potential to be adopted by anybody, but in countries with weak property rights, like say Cuba and North Korea, it's anathema because I don't want you to own anything. And uh, China is not quite as weak property right as North Korea, but it's much weaker property rights than say Western Europe or the United States. And so they have this love-hate relationship with it and ultimately they can't get comfortable with it. So. So most of uh, that uh, has slipped away. And in the past two years, I think Bitcoin has become entrenched as a, a very strong layer in the Western net. And uh, I think that um, the die is cast there. I don't think that, I think the Chinese had a point where they could have grabbed control of it. And I think they lost control and now they'll never get it back. And that's been good for the West and it's, it's going to cost them a trillion dollars or trillions of dollars because of the mistake of dismissing it. But I mean, history is full of examples of empires that they reject some new technology to their detriment. Outstanding. Uh, do we have a question over here? Hi, Scott with Heritage Foundation. Um, do you believe that the infrastructure of, um, I guess, the internet being built on blockchain technology? blockchain technology 
will render um, some of these big tech companies like Amazon Web Services, Google Cloud, um, and all of those big tech companies that uh, dominate the um, web infrastructure, do you think that they will render them useless or will they adopt to kind of using blockchain technology to um, further like run their that's a great question because I tweeted out maybe about a year ago that Bitcoin was going to hack Silicon Valley. Bitcoin was going to hack big tech. And it's happening with Jack Dorsey, right? Um, I mean, he really is moving away from the centralized model to embrace the decentralization of, of tech. And I think the same is possibly happening with Elon Musk. And we're just going to see the dominoes fall because um, the centralized model pisses off half of the, of the users, right? If you start um, canceling people. And, and, um, and it, but it's, it's an infrastructure issue as well. There are two single point of failures in the Bitcoin ecosystem, one of which is cloud services, that so many of the intermediaries are, are really running on a very small number of cloud services. And the other is banking, U.S. dollar banking. There are really only two banks that service this industry. It's deemed a high-risk industry by the U.S. bank regulators. And so behind most of the intermediaries that you see in this industry is, is one of two banks. Um, and so I do worry about those potential single points of failure. But to your, to your original question, yes, it's, it's going to continue to hack big tech. And Jack Dorsey was just the first to recognize that. A lot of us are hopeful about Elon. He's accepting Bitcoin again, he says, because it's renewable. Yeah, well, you know, um, Twitter tips is becoming a really important rail for remittances. And you can use the Bitcoin Lightning Network on Twitter tips to move money to any Twitter user around the world really for free and instantly right now. Um, and so I think it's, it's one of the many payment services that you can choose on Twitter tips. But my hunch is that Elon's not talking about that. He's just, that's what's really going on in his mind, right? I mean, he wanted to figure out how to hack payments. He started his career uh, at a predecessor to PayPal that merged into PayPal. And, uh, and then it got sort of pulled, he got rugged, if you will. Um, and then he went off to do all these other interesting things. And now he's coming back to payments again. He's not talking about this, but I have a feeling that's a big part of what his plans are. Michael, uh, I'm curious if you've spoken to uh, Elon Musk, uh, tried to get him off the Dogecoin thing. <laughs> Elon is his own man. <laughs> With, uh, metaphors. <laughs> I'm trying to get something that the internet will love. Okay, any Ask me about Bitcoin. <laughs> okay, any questions over here? Hi, Saf with uh, Saldus. Um, if and when do you think uh, Bitcoin will start breaking away in, from its correlation to um, stock market? Yeah, we're all waiting, right? <laughs> um, you know, there's two ways to answer that. One is, is sometime in the next year or two. Uh, the second would be, it already has. If you roll the clock back to March of 2020, when everything drew down, Bitcoin was like 4,500 a coin. If you look when, I had no interest in Bitcoin before the second quarter of 2020. And in the second quarter of 2020, I was really disturbed by COVID, the K-shaped recovery, the, the impending hyperinflation I could see coming. And I was looking for an inflation hedge. And I 
and I had $500 million to invest. And I actively decided, I said, should I buy gold? Should I buy the S&P index? Should I buy Amazon or Apple? Amazon, buy, Amazon stock was trading higher then than it is now. The NASDAQ was, you know, ended up trading the same then as it is now. Uh, gold was trading higher then than it is now. And we rifled through that and we decided to buy Bitcoin as the digital gold. It's basically all the promise of gold without the defects on a big tech network that's exploding. Uh, to make a long story short, Bitcoin is up since our first acquisition 150%. And if you trace it, you'll find that the S&P is up 17%. The money supply expanded 18%. So the S&P index tracked the money supply linearly. Bitcoin ran much faster in the last 18 months. Gold is down. Gold did not actually monetize. I mean, gold is dead money. And if you, if you love gold, I apologize. But, the, but ultimately, the velocity of gold is a million times slower than Bitcoin is not a technology. It's never going to get smarter, faster, stronger because of a computer chip. And, and anything that is not getting smarter, faster, stronger because of computer technology, right, is probably not a good investment in the last 20 years. So um, Bitcoin already decoupled from the market. Now, it, now it's chopping with a lot of volatility, but over a two-year, four-year, six-year, eight-year time frame, it's a winner. And if you, if you look at it and your metrics are always four-year smooth moving averages, then I think you're fine. If you try to actually figure out what it's going to do in four weeks, four months, four days, or four hours, you're going to give yourself an apoplectic fit. <laughs> Just not, not possible. Okay, uh, thank you. I actually held you guys longer than promised. Um, thank you all for attending. Thank you online uh, for tuning in. I hope this was fun. And really, it was an honor having you guys here. Thank Truly you. appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having us.